Great, if I can invite you to grab a seat. Um, wonderful. Okay, so we're really privileged this morning to have uh, with us a guest speaker from Kingsgate Church. So Kingsgate is a church in Kingston also, which is just kind of, uh, it's kind of opposite the cinema seems to be the only landmark I can think of even though it's also opposite the station um, so it's a wonderful church and what it's such a privilege in Kingston to be a part of a network of Kingston churches together where we just are able to connect in with other churches it's a really unique thing and a really special thing and we're so privileged to have Paul to come and speak to us this morning he's an elder over at King's Church so can we welcome him like King's Church welcome as he comes up and receive what he says that good Boom. That's loud. Ooh. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Paul. As Becca said, this is my wife, Robin. And uh, we lead the evening congregation in uh, Kingston. Um, we are uh, people say, what's the evening congregation like? And we're kind of a, a rabble in the Dullum's cave of about 40 people that get together and worship Jesus on a Sunday night and see what he does. Um, so that's, that's what I do. Um, am I very boomy or is that me or is that just this? Or is it just because I can hear me behind me? Okay, that's fine. Um, before I preach, I just wanted to sort of say off the back of what Becca said, that the relationship that we have as churches together in Kingston, I don't know if it's unique, but it's certainly very special. On Thursday morning, a group of about six of us got together. Um, Noni Farley, who leads the vineyard, has just taken over from Keith as the chairperson of Kingston Churches Together. And she was just saying that how her desire, she's been in church leadership for 23 years, I think she said, and her desire is just to see a real greater unity between the churches and kings. There is really good unity, but she wants to really take it a bit further and for us to begin to really become good friends with each other. You know, Jesus is coming back for one bride. It's not going to be the New Frontiers guys or the Catholic guys or the Baptist guys or whatever it is. He's come back for one, one, one bride of the people that love Jesus and follow Jesus. And I think we better get, on, get, get used to in this life getting on together because um, we're going to spend a whole lot of time together in eternity. And so um, it's been great having Philip part of that. And just, just to say, if you're new to church, if this isn't your normal church, the guys that are here every time, they know what I'm about to say. But I've known Philip now I think for five or six years and the things that stand out for me about Philip is one he's an incredibly humble man and he's got a guy with a huge amount of integrity and churches if you're not used to churches I'm going to disappoint you now I'm going to tell you churches are not perfect they're filled with imperfect people in fact they're filled with people who are pretty messed up like all of us that Jesus has been is transforming us to look like him and so church leaders are exactly the same they're not perfect people. Sometimes we put church leaders on pedestals and like go, oh, I'm going to be like him or her. Don't. Because we're just imperfect people. But the thing I've noticed about Philip in the time that I've known him, is he's got incredible integrity. And what you see on the outside is, you know, what you see on Sunday is what you see at the other time. That's the sort of person you can follow. That's the sort of person you can be safe around because he'll admit when he gets stuff wrong and he'll walk humbly. And so I just want to, while he's not here, you can say nice things about him. You know, I never want to say nice things to people's face. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, but I just want to say, you've got a safe guy there. You've got a guy that you can, be, you can be comfortable around. It's a privilege to be part of Jesus' bride in Kingston with him. And with you as well. 
So, he asked me to speak on uh, the omnipotence of God, and you'd been doing this series called Spotlight, and I did actually read the notes that he sent me, and so the idea of this series is that we look at uh, different aspects of God's character, and that's supposed to draw us into worshiping him. Now, he did say to me, you've got freedom to kind of divert a bit, and I think he possibly you know, anticipated that that might happen, so he gave me the freedom to do that. It's not great when somebody comes in to preach, and they say, I know what you told me to preach, but I'm going to do this because I've got a better idea. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully not doing that, but he did say he gave me some freedom. And so what I want to speak about is the omnipotence of God, but in, in Ephesians... In chapter 1, Paul prays this prayer. He says, and this is one of Paul's great apostolic prayers for the church. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He teaches us, he reveals to us the things of God, and he gives us the wisdom as to how we apply that to our lives. Why do we need the spirit of wisdom and revelation? So that we may know him better. And then he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance. For those of you looking, it's 1 Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 1, 17 to 21. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his, lo- in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So omnipotence, for those of you who haven't got your dictionaries with you, is well defined as incomparably great power. God has all power. All power is his. And this incomparably great power is not just some attribute of God that exists up there and we go, Wow. That's a perfectly valid response to go, wow, God. And when you stop and think about it, maybe it doesn't for you, but as I stop and comprehend God's greatness, my brain begins to flatline at times. You just go like, I don't, I don't have a grid for that. It's so amazingly beyond anything I can, I can imagine. And that's why Paul says he's incomparably great power. Like, you can't go, well, it's like this, because it's not. Uh, the Irish language, we had to learn it in school. And everything is, nothing is just that. It's, this is like that. So you describe something as being as fast as the wind, or as black as coal, or as strong as a horse. It was always compared to something else. And, uh, but with God's power, you can't say, well, God's power is like this, because it's just not. Because it's beyond that. So this incomparably great power, but for those who believe. So if you're here this morning, and this is either your first time, or you're on a journey of, of getting to know Jesus, this is what you're being invited into. This is what God wants you to begin to know about and to increasingly know about. And for those of us who have already encountered him and know, this is what he wants us to know more and more. Paul's prayer for the church is that the eyes of our heart, the, our wisdom, our, the wisdom that God gives us, expands us by the Holy Spirit so that we can understand something more of this incomparably great power and how it is for us. This power is the same as the mighty strength. So he is kind of trying to do a comparison here. This power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So hopefully this morning what we can do is just 
put some stuff out there that helps us to understand a bit more about this incomparably great power that's for us and how we can actually come into partnership with God the way he wants us to do it. So we are looking at God's omnipotence, but it's kind of how it applies to us. Right, I've started in the middle now, I'll go back to the start, now that I've jumbled myself up and got myself confused. So, um, Genesis 1 verse 3, I think I did actually manage to put that one. So, when I think about God's omnipotence, when I think about God's incredibly, incredibly great power, I can't get past Genesis 1. Like the Bible tells us that there was nothing, and then God spoke, and then there was something. That's pretty impressive. There was just darkness and nothingness. Now, we could get into a great big long argument about how that happened and what time scale that happened. You can decide to believe that that happened in one instant, or you can decide to believe that that happened in 100 million years. We could argue about that for eternity. I still don't think we'd come to agreement. I don't know that it's that massively relevant. You can disagree with that as well if you want. But the thing that is relevant, is in the beginning, God. And it says, God spoke and light was formed. And then after light was formed, everything else came into existence. Everything that we know, everything that we interact with, everything that we discover. I love it. We discover a new star. We build a gigantic great telescope. And we go, oh, we've discovered a new star. We're going to call it this. And God goes, I dreamt that up and I just spoke it into existence. And you're so impressed with yourselves because you've spent months, years, whatever, decades building this thing just to be able to see it and give it a name. And I just went, and it existed because I can. That's his greatness. That's this incomparably great power. If, you want, if you're into that sort of stuff, get some of Lou Giglio's uh, material on the greatness of God and the size of the planets and all this sort of, that God just went, I dreamt it up and I spoke it. And it existed. It wasn't difficult. It wasn't hard. I just spoke. And it happened. That's his incomparably great power. God spoke. And enormous things, magnificent things, incredible things, exquisite things, just came out of his imagination into being. Can you imagine being able to just imagine something and then speak it and it's there? That's what God's like. That's what his power is like. Everything that exists just came out of his imagination by the power of his word. And the thing that bends my head even more is that Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that he upholds the whole universe by the power of his word. So everything is held together by the power of his word. So all of this stuff, all of the galaxies, all of the eyeballs, all of the lemongrass, all the duckbill platypuses and spongy mesophils and all these other sort of things, they all just hold together by the power of God's word. He speaks and it stops. If he stopped sustaining that, like I can't even guarantee myself one more breath. We can't guarantee the sustenance of the bricks and mortar. For another, like it gets a bit depressing when you think about it, but we can't actually control. God stops sustaining everything by the power of his word. It all just vaporizes. It goes. But by the power of his word, he holds it all together. That's how powerful he is. And then that's just at the very start. But if you follow the story through the whole of the Old Testament into the New Testament, we just see repeated mind-bending stories. Like he flooded the whole world, 
Like we, we talk about a bad flood, the river rises by like a couple of feet and like houses that are right in the riverbank get flooded. No, it says God flooded the whole world and even more of a headbend, he taught some guy Noah to build a boat that was going to float in this at a time when there'd never been rain. Like they'd never seen rain before and God says to the guy, no, I'm going to build you a massive big boat and you see the models that guys build of these boats. You go, how on earth did that thing float? But God knows how to do that. He provided food out of nothing when they were crossing the, the desert. The sea, to get them there, like he defies the laws of physics. Sea, just part, dry land in between. Have you ever tried it in the bath? Water, just part, and we'll have a dry bath in the middle. Doesn't work, I've tried. God does it, and that was the sea, not just the bath. Maybe if you're able to move your hands fast enough with the bath, like you'd be able to do it, like for a, but God just spoke. And the sea just stopped. The same with the river Jordan. It just stops. God speaks. And we think, oh, that's massively, incredibly impressive. And in some ways it is. Walls of cities just collapsed. But just, boom, the walls of Jericho, they were like meters thick. Boom, down they went. No great effort. Military victories, rescued people from white animals, causing rain to stop and then start again. Incurable diseases healed, people brought back from the dead. That's just the Old Testament. The New Testament... A virgin got pregnant. How does that happen? But yet, God did it. He just spoke and it happened. Like none of this takes any effort. He's so powerful that it doesn't like, okay, I've got to do it, working hard. And the thing, when he tells the creation story, and he says on the seventh day God rested, it wasn't because he was tired. I know you use your ESV here, and some of you will have the ESV study notes that explain that when a Near Eastern God rested, it meant he sat down in his temple. God sat down with his people. That's a side issue. That's not what his rest was about. He wasn't tired. Again, we see incurable diseases healed. We see people brought back to life. We see vast amount of food provided for people. Storms calmed, walking on water. Demons cast out of uncontrollable people. A tree just spoke into it and it shriveled and died. Like all these things are just examples of God's incredible power. Now, we can get, if, you, if I brought a lot of Play-Doh with me, and I built this incredible model of Kingston. I've got zero artistic ability, so I wouldn't be able to do this. But the hypothetical scenario, I want you to imagine that I could. And uh, I built this incredible Play-Doh model of Kingston. And all these little people in my little model. If one of the little models fell over, and I picked up the little tiny figurine this size and put the leg back on and put it back. He wouldn't go, oh, wow, that's incredible. He just put the leg back on the Play-Doh figurine. Now, the fact that I've built this incredible model is probably the more impressive thing. And yet God's interactions with us, we go, wow, God. It's easy for him because he has all power. He's almighty. And it's not just stories in the Bible. You read church history, the same things have happened over and over and over again. If you want to read some incredible stories, anybody read Pete Griggs' Dirty Glory? It's about the 24-7 prayer movement. And there's some incredible stories in there of God breaking in. So it's not just stuff that happened 2,000 years ago. It's still happening. It's still happening in England. Not just in like places that have incredible spiritual stuff like somewhere else. But here. You know, Pete Grigg lives down the road in Guildford. He's talking about stories that have happened here. You've probably got similar stories. I've got similar stories. God's power still breaking in. But given the fact that we're in church, and I'm speaking to probably a majority of people who've got some, some 
both understanding and expectation that God and belief that God is all powerful. What where we tend to get a little bit stuck is how do I get that power to work for me? You know, I know God's all powerful, and you can have a really good theology of God's power, but have a really rubbish theology of God's love for me. You can have a really poor theology. You can have sort of like the Michelangelo, sort of the tenuous finger that stretches down, but actually got no, no connection with me whatsoever. And so what I want to look at really is how do we get this power to work for us? And just so as not to be horrible to people, that's the wrong question to ask. Because when it's how do I get God to work for me, what I'm trying to do is how do I manipulate God? How do I get God to do what I want him to do? And to be blunt, Sometimes in charismatic world, that's kind of what we're trying to do. I'm saying that as a fully signed up charismatic. But sometimes it's like, okay, how do I, you know, I call it slot machine Jesus. How do I put my prayer in and pull the lever and get the apples to line up so that he has to pay out? Because I want, I want to know how I can make God do things. And I've had conversations with people who go, but how do I make God do it? I'm like, good luck with that one. If he's all powerful, you can't make him do anything. He's God. How do we come into alignment with him? Because Jesus is our example, and Jesus didn't seem to have a problem with God's power being released through him. So what did it look like when Jesus operated? So if we can have that verse from John 15, verse 7. So the ESV says, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. If you want your charismatic key for how to get God to do what you want to do, that's a great verse to misinterpret. The New Living, New Living Translation and the NIV say, but if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. And it's like, yes, that's what I want to know. How do, so what does this remain mean? What, how do I do this abiding thing? Because that's the key. That's what I need to do. If I can do this abiding thing well enough, then he's got to, he's got to pay out. I've got my apples lined up. He's got to pay. It's the jackpot. John 15, verse 7. Uh, sorry, we know we're there, but the Passion Translation translates it like this. But if you live in life union with me, and if my words live powerfully within you, then you can ask whatever you desire, and it will be done. And I think he explains very well what, that, what abiding and what remaining is. So if you live in life union with me, and my words live powerfully within you. You see, the Bible says that when we've put our trust in Jesus, when we've said, Jesus, when you died, that was for me. You've taken all my stuff away. We become united with him. We become one with him. How does that work? I have no idea. Maybe somebody can explain how, what it, but I just have to accept it as a fact because my Bible tells me. But I have become one with Jesus when it says that he's seated in the heavenly realms, it also says that I'm seated with him in the heavenly realms. We have become one. But the more that I understand and the more that I live that out, you see, Christianity is this strange thing that you, when you, the moment you put your trust in Jesus, you get given this status of perfect, flawless, spotless righteousness, being fully united with Jesus. And then you spend the rest of your life becoming what you already are. Like it's kind of a wrong way around to the way you, you can't earn it to get it. You just get given it and then you, be, you spend the rest of your life allowing yourself, retraining your mind, being transformed by the renewing of your mind to become who God says you already are. And when I forget who I am, I start 
behaving in the wrong way, but when I remember who I am and I live who he says I am, I behave in the right way and I begin to look more and more like Jesus. That's why it says, whereas we gaze upon him, I do actually have the 2 Corinthians 13, verse 8. Let me quote it rather than misquote it. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We don't become more like Jesus by trying harder, either trying harder not to sin or trying harder to be nice and really trying hard and going, oh, I messed up again. We become more like him by gazing on him, by falling in love with him and going, I want to be like that. Oh, and as we do it, we're transformed to be like him. Our identity, that we are sons and daughters of the living God, as we begin to understand that and are transformed, we become it. You are who you believe you are. You behave in keeping with who you believe you are. If you believe you're a sinner, you will keep on sinning. Why wouldn't you? Because that's who you are. But if you believe that I've been transformed into a son or a daughter and I'm increasingly being so, then that's what you do. You, gaze, you become what you gaze upon. I grew up, I learned to drive in the country. There were no streetlights. I can't get used to driving. I've been living in London for 23 years and I still forget to turn on my lights most evenings. I've been pulled over for coppers by driving around with no lights on. And I'm like, well, I don't need lights, they're streetlights. But they seem to think I do need them. My wife seems to think I need, I need them. Anyway, but when you drive in the country on, who's driven on Irish roads? Anybody here driven on Irish roads? It's an interesting, um, we don't have some of the same things like white lines and stuff like that that are kind of normal here. And um, but when a car is coming towards you in the dark, you don't look at the car that's coming towards you. You look at, the, at either the curb or the hedge or the wall or whatever's there. The curb's probably a bit of a, uh, a euphemism for what might be there. You look, for, you look at the hedge, because if you look at the lights, you'll drive into it, because you go towards what you fix your eyes on. It's exactly the same with Jesus. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, we become like him. When we fix our eyes on our sin, we become like that. And so as I live in life union with him, as I focus on who I am and who he says I am, I become more and more like him. And his life begins to be lived out through me. That's the point. His life increasingly is lived out through me. So as you live in life union with me and as my words live powerfully within you. In other words, who he says I am and who he says that I'm supposed to be, as that becomes transformatively part of me, not just mental assent, yes, I agree. The devil agrees that Jesus is God. doesn't mean that he follows him. Just agreeing that Jesus is God, just going, yeah, I agree, that doesn't change anything. It's as it becomes my reality, as it has so formed inside me that it becomes who I am and that Jesus' life is lived out through me, then my prayers become Jesus' prayers, and my life becomes Jesus' life. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. That's what we're supposed to be living here. And so as his words take deep root within us, and as his life is lived out through us, then we pray the prayers that he would pray. Then we can have confidence that God will answer what we're asking for. It's not slot machine Jesus. I put my 20p in, the apples lined up, pay out. No, then I'm not sure who's God in that scenario, but it certainly isn't him, in my mind at least. The two things, identity, understanding who I am, that living in life union with him, and then his words 
um, taking powerful root inside me. I want you to look quickly, Luke chapter 4, verse 1 it says, so Jesus has just been baptized, and it says Jesus, led by the, full of the Holy Spirit, is led into the desert. And then he's tested and tempted for a couple of, for a 40 days. And then Luke 14, Luke 4, 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee, Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Something changed from being full of the Spirit to moving in the power of the Spirit. And if you look at the three things he was tempted with, if you are the Son of God, what do you mean if I'm the Son of God? I am the Son of God. But that's how the devil tempts us. He goes after your identity. If you are one of God's children, if God is moving powerfully through you, if you're in life union with Jesus, if, 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 are you sure about your identity? You can't do that. What if God doesn't show up? What if God doesn't love you? You can't pray for that person and see something powerful happen. What if God doesn't want to? If you are, no, I know who I am. Jesus doesn't respond. You see, Adam and Eve in the garden were tempted to do exactly the same thing. If you do this, you'll be like God. God's already said, I've made you like me in my image. That's what in my image means. If, if, if. That's how the devil works over and over again. Challenges your identity. And the other one he says, and basically paraphrasing, he says, Jesus, I know what you've come for. I know you've to come to take back all authority from me. Do it my way. Don't go the awkward, nasty way that involves the cross and dying and all that painful, horrible stuff. Just bow down and worship me. I'll give you what you wanted. It's much easier this way. Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm fully submitted to the Father's will. See, it's just a restatement of the same thing. Living in life union and his words taking powerful root in us, knowing who my, what my identity is, living in submission to God's will. If I'm going to have the last slide up, I did say that I have very little artistic ability. But I do like it, uh, to try and create a picture of what I'm describing. So in Ephesians 1, it says, we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ, and that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, as even come through in some of the, some of the things this morning, uh, some of the contributions. So everything we need is in Christ in the heavenly realms. In fact, every blessing in the heavenly realms is in Christ, and we're in Christ. But I don't know if, I don't want to break something horrible to you, but we also live here in the physical realm. And what we're supposed to be doing is revealing all of those blessings here in the physical realm. But as far as I can see, if you think of ourselves, I, I could only find the light bulb. I wanted a balloon, but I couldn't really find it in clip art. Um, the, the color or the, the space through which we release our, the, the blessings is made up of our identity and our obedience to God's will. Same things as Jesus moved from being full of the Holy Spirit to operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the more we understand our identity, the more we live out this life union with Jesus, the more we live in complete submission to him, the more of that can be released. But just so that you don't think that I'm heading into a weird land, because often in charismatic world, that's where we stop. And we go, well, you know, if you're not seeing all of God's blessings released in your life, it's because you don't understand your identity or you don't understand, basically, you're the problem. And that's just not true. It's only part of the story because there's also an enemy who's fighting against us. Not only is he constantly challenging our identity, not only is he constantly offering us easier ways of doing it than God's way, but he's also just straight on fighting against us.
So our job is to release God's love. Our job is to reveal who the Father is to the world around us. As we understand our identity, as we understand, or as we walk in obedience to God's ways of doing it, we see more and more of that radiating. But there is an enemy that pushes against us. Our Father has all power. He speaks, and the things that he imagines come into existence. He has delegated everything to us and given us the task of releasing it in this world. Jesus said to his disciples, I have revealed the Father to those you've given me. The only reason we're here is to do exactly the same thing, to reveal the Father to the world around us. But the only way we can do that is through knowing what our identity is. I'm united with Jesus. I'm a loved son or daughter of the Father of heaven. He is absolutely passionately proud of me. You are his beloved son or his beloved daughter. He is so pleased with you. Some of us battle with that. How could he be pleased with me? I know what I did. I know what I've done. Jesus, when the Father said that over him, had done nothing in terms of his ministry. All he'd done was lived a sin-free life, and we've been granted a gift of that. So the Father says that over us with exactly the same correctness. You are his beloved son, his beloved daughter. He is so pleased with you. So let's take a moment to respond to this. I think it was Paul brought a word when we were praying earlier on about repenting. Repentance just means change your mind. It means I was going that way, now I'm going this way. It's not about beating myself up or sometimes it does involve tears, but it doesn't have to. It's changing my mind and going a different way. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you are opening the eyes of our hearts to know the height and the breadth and the depth and the length of the love that the Father has for us, this incomparably great power that is for us who believe. And so if you've never, if this morning you've never taken the opportunity or had the opportunity to say to Jesus, I want to know you. I recognize that I've got issues. I've got stuff but you promised to take it away. And so I'm going to reach out to you and say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you to do that for me and for you to draw me into a relationship with you. If that's you this morning, just where you're sitting there, that's all it takes is just going, Jesus, I want that. I recognize I'm, I'm not flawless, just like everyone else. But if, as I've been speaking, some of the stuff about identity, the Holy Spirit's just been, just been identifying to you, that's, that's where I struggle. I'm not convinced yet that I'm a flawless son of God or a daughter of God in status, increasingly becoming that in experience. 
then again, it's just a matter of changing your mind. Father, I thank you that what your word says is true, and I am who you say I am, not who the devil says I am, not who I say I am, not who the world around me says I am. I am who you say I am. And we're all in that space, increasingly or decreasingly. The only person who walked perfectly in his identity was Jesus. Or if you've just felt as I've been speaking, I'm one of those people that I know how God wants me to do things. I know what he has for me to be doing, but I'm trying to do it a different way. I'm trying to do it my way. Again, just changing your mind. Father, I'm sorry. I recognize that you actually know more than I do. And your way is better. Father, we want to be those who demonstrate your incomparably great power and your incomparably great love and your incomparably great kindness and goodness and mercy and grace wherever we go. The schools, the universities that we attend or where we teach, the places that we work, the places that we socialize, they need to know that there's a Father who loves them. And you've put us there to be the ones who demonstrate it and reveal it. And the more we know who we are, and the more we follow your way, the more we see it happen.